0: Once again, to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, we are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each time on At Home in Your Hymnal, we take a look at a certain part of God's Word in Lutheran service book, the liturgy, a hymn, a particular doctrine or practice in Lutheran worship, what we do and why we do it. Welcome, Pastor Moline.
1: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: We've been working our way through Divine Service Setting 1, and uh, we, we parked the car a long time at uh, God's gift of the Lord's Supper, and I think that was a, a good time for us to spend a little extra time. We, we want people to be absolutely sure and certain that this gift of God, His holy meal, the Lord's Supper, is indeed Christ's body and blood, In with and under bread and wine given for us Christians to eat and drink. This is episode thirty-one. In our previous episode, we looked in great detail at what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess regarding the doctrine and practice of the Lord's Supper. What our friends in Reformed and Evangelical churches teach with regard to the doctrine and practice of the Lord's Supper, and what Roman Catholics believe, teach, and confess. We compared that against uh, scripture, we compared that against the practices that we have in our Lutheran service book, in our hymnal in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we talked about the importance and proper placement of the Lord's Prayer, and we emphasized, as all Christians should, on the very words of Jesus, the verba, oftentimes called the words of institution. We want to move on, and in between the consecration of the Lord's Supper and the distribution of the Lord's Supper, we have two short little musical pieces, and we heard those as we came into our program today. The first one is called the Pax Domini, the Peace of the Lord. And in Divine Service Setting 1, we're on page 163 in Lutheran Service Book, the pastor says or chants, The peace of the Lord be with you always. And the congregation responds, Amen. Pastor, some uh, initial words or thoughts on this Pax Domini.
1: Well, uh, the peace of the Lord be with you always is a very important part of uh, the Lord's Supper rite. And kind of maybe the first thing we should talk about is the words themselves come from John chapter 20, where Jesus appears to the disciples um, after rising from the dead. And the first thing that he says to them is, peace be with you. And uh, as he's doing this, uh, he immediately then shows them his hands and his side, signifying the way that we have peace between each other and between us and God. By the wounds of Christ, we are healed. Uh, Isaiah says that very same thing. And that's the same thing we're saying then in the Lord's Supper rite. And so oftentimes the pastor will hold up the bread and the wine that has been consecrated and say, the peace of the Lord be with you always, signifying that the peace that you have in your life and between you and God comes from the wounds of Christ, uh, the body and blood of Jesus, which you are now about to partake in, in eating and drinking them in the Lord's Supper. And so all this goes together in one big lump so that we can understand how our forgiveness is earned and delivered.
0: Well said. And uh, the resurrected Christ, this triumph over sin, death, and the grave, uh, is ours, and we are proclaiming it, this same peace that Jesus brought to the disciples as they cowered in fear. I've got a quote from Luther's works, the... um, Uh, volume 53, the one that talks so much about the uh, hymns and liturgy of the church, says, To proclaim this truth of Christ's resurrection is applied now to us visually. It is appropriate for the celebrant, the pastor, to hold forth the chalice of Christ's blood with a consecrated host, Christ's body, before the congregation while speaking these words. This proclaims the very present giving of the Lord's peace as we eat and drink of his body and blood at the altar. Martin Luther strongly saw the Pax Domini as a public absolution of the sins of the communicants, the true voice of the gospel announcing the forgiveness of sins, and therefore the single most worthy preparation for the Lord's table as faith holds itself to these words, as coming from the mouth of Christ himself. What are your thoughts on that quote, Pastor?
1: Yeah, I, I think Luther's uh, very good in this regard, and he's, he's especially then uh, dealing with the medieval Catholic practice, which we talked about in length, I think, a week or two ago, uh, talking about all the things that took place that might shroud the words of our Lord um, and and what actually is happening in the Lord's Supper from our view. And I think this is another place, then, after we say the words of institution, we have this declaration that clarifies, again, what's going on. We're receiving peace from God through the eating and the drinking of Christ's body and blood and the pastor elevating the uh, body and blood so that all can see, that emphasizes the reality. As, as Luther said, it's visual. You see where you're going to go and get that peace uh, from up in the altar chancel area. And so it, it's really a great thing. And I think something that we need to emphasize, the, the response
0: of the people here is amen. Uh, ever since Vatican II, this whole uh, the Lord be with you and also with you, this kind of holy howdy, uh, thing that's in the uh, in the church and in the liturgy this is not a time to say how you doing buddy Uh, from the pastor to the congregation or from the congregation back to the pastor this is a gospel proclamation right here the peace of the lord be with you always and the proper response of the people to that is amen yes I believe it. So don't get lulled into a, uh, and also with you, kind of a kind of a response here. The uh, the next part that we heard as we came in is the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, and it is just repeated three times. The ending is just a little bit uh, different again, emphasizing that peace of the Lord. Where do these words come from, Pastor? These are from Scripture as well, aren't they?
1: They are. They're uh, words of John the Baptist uh, from uh, the Gospel of St. John, where Jesus shows up and John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these are words that have been said in the service since uh, Pope Sergius the I uh, in the 700s A.D. I think he died in 701 or something like that. And so um this this was introduced then as a way to Lots of times, singing is a buffer for activity that's going on. And so, as this is being sung, the pastors are making sure everything is ready to go to distribute the Lord's Supper. There's the, you know, breaking up of the bread so there's enough for everybody. There's the handing off of the chalice, making sure it's topped off, uh, getting everything squared away up there for those who will distribute the Lord's Supper. And this song, the Agnus Dei, quoted from John 1, is kind of a song that is sung to cover the noise and the time that that takes to get ready to go and distribute the Lord's Supper. And so that's what its purpose is there in this particular part of the liturgy.
0: It is also interesting to note that if you go to a worship service in many Reformed or Evangelical churches, one thing that is noticeably absent from the communion liturgy is the Agnus Dei, And I think this is a Lutheran, Roman Catholic distinctive, because it is proclaiming that the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who really takes away the sin of the world, is present with you right here, right now, in, with, and under bread and wine. Uh, From uh, Fred Preck's book, The Manual on the Liturgy, we have this quote, The Agnus Dei serves as a hymn of adoration to the Savior Christ, who is present for us in his body and blood. It is for this reason that this hymn did not survive in the liturgies of reformed churches, which refused to affirm the real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the sacramental elements. I think we Lutherans take so much of the liturgy for granted, but this particular liturgical song at this particular time
1: is really making a bold confession of faith. Pastor? It it really is. And that's, um, that's It's it's a shame that we don't know this and that we take it for granted, and that's why I think this uh, going through the liturgy is so important, so that we understand that everything we do has been thought out tremendously, and that there is a reason behind everything that we do, and um, there's probably some things we should do that we don't do yet, uh, because we haven't had opportunity to learn about the reasons behind all these things, and that um, it's not a mark of being a Christian doing these things, but rather understanding the faith correctly and why we're doing what we're doing. We ought to do these things in a joyful response to God's gifts. You,
0: uh, many of our hearers may be familiar with the uh, <laughs>
1: liturgical
0: writings of a gentleman by the name of Luther Reed. He uh, was a very, very famous Lutheran uh, Liturgist and literary literologist? I don't even know how to say that. A turgiologist? Thank you. And uh, he wrote many, many wonderful works on the importance of the liturgy, the history of the liturgy. And he has this, uh, this quote on the Agnus Day In the Lutheran conception, the Agnus is closely connected with the distribution and has a strongly sacramental interpretation. It is not so much a renewed confession of sin as a means of spiritual communion with the Christ who is directly addressed not the father. The text contains a threefold confession of Christ's victorious atonement in fulfillment of prophecy and a prayer for the mercy and peace which his death on the cross has won for us and then he references Ephesians 2. It addresses reverently it's its address reverently recognizes Christ as the Savior of the world. Its petitions embrace all the blessings which his sacrificial death has procured for believers. The reference to Christ as a lamb recalls to the worshiper not only the sacrificial character of his death, but also his freedom from guilt, his patience and gentleness, and his voluntary submission to the sufferings and death. Thus, reception of the elements in the Holy Communion is intimately connected with our Lord's sacrifice on Calvary and all of its fruits, which are forgiveness and peace. Comments on that
1: quote from Luther Reed, Pastor? Well, I mean, it's hard to say it better than that. I mean, that's the exact truth. It is telling us what we're getting and what things are granted to us. Uh, Forgiveness of sins, life and salvation, peace before God, and it all comes through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. After the Agnus Dei and
0: the uh, Pax Domini, the distribution takes place. When we come back from our break, we want to spend some time talking about several different questions that come up, both from a pastor's perspective and from the uh, members of the congregation's perspective, with regard to a proper distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. Uh this, these next three segments are going to be dynamite, folks. I would just encourage you to not change that dial. We'll be right back.
2: You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Be on us, let our God who take away the sin.
0: Welcome back to At Home in Your Hymnal, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are working our way through Divine Service Setting 1, and much of what we've talked about with regard to our examination of Divine Service Setting 1 really applies to all of the divine services in Lutheran Service Book, all five of them. We're specifically looking at Divine Service Setting 1 as kind of a template for us. We looked at the Pax Domini and the Agnus Dei in segment one of this episode 31, and now we want to talk about several different topics that come about with regard to the actual distribution of our Lord's body and blood. There are so many things that we could talk about here, Pastor, and so many questions that come up, and I think we've covered Many of them, at least in part, as we've talked about some of the theological differences between what Lutherans believe, teach, and confess and our brothers and sisters in Roman Catholic churches or our brothers and sisters in evangelical and Reformed churches, what we do matters. Mm -hmm. And how we do things in the church is a reflection, either a good reflection or a poor reflection of what we believe, teach, and confess. And so we want to make sure that we are not departing from the institution of Christ's body and blood that is clearly taught to us in the words of institution. And so, uh, we, we've talked in the past about why a pastor is the one doing this, and so I don't think we need to touch on that topic again. Augsburg Confession, Article 14, says that no one uh, should preach or administer the sacraments unless he be rightly called. So this is the pastor's job, this is the pastor's calling to Preside at the Lord's table to administer. This is not something where everyone is a minister. If people have more questions about that, I'm I'm happy to spend more time on that. But I think we've I think we've dealt with that topic in uh, in great detail. Something that that you've mentioned, Pastor, that was uh, kind of a, an issue for you during your eight years or so of service in uh, congregations in North Dakota was a question, a discussion, maybe even a controversy with regard to receptionism versus consecrationism. And I don't know if you like those terms, if those terms are good or reflective or helpful or a hindrance, but could you just explain what we're talking about, and maybe what the issue was
1: that you dealt with in your former congregations. Well, and it wasn't just in the former congregations. It was across um, many different places uh, in the district. Um, this is
0: an issue, a question, I should say. Right. This is a question in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and <laughs> in wider Lutheranism. Right. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that this was only nope. a North Dakota issue. Right. My I, bad I just there. didn't want to
1: throw anybody under the bus that was... uh... So, anyways, the the issue is, um, the question is, what is it that makes Christ's body and blood present? And what implications does that have? And over the history of time, and I think there's a good word fitly spoken about this very topic, um, over the course of time, there were those who said that it is the uh, consecration itself that makes Christ's body and blood present which is partly true. Um, the, the issue then is the Roman Catholic practice of adoration, where the priest would say the words of institution and then Christ's body and blood would be placed into a monstrance and uh, worshiped as Christ's body and blood. And the, the issue is that comes away from the words of Christ that say, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my body. He doesn't say, take and adore, this is my body, take and adore, this is my blood. And so those who are consecrationists uh, run the risk of falling on that particular side of the fence. On the other hand, you have those who are receptionists who believe Christ's body and blood are not present until such time as the elements hit your mouth. And the issue with that is then it takes the power of the Lord's Supper presence away from the words of Christ and instead into the action that we're doing. By me receiving Christ's body and blood in my mouth, I'm making him present. And that takes the power away from the words. The truth is, it's all these things together. It is uh, doing what the words say and uh, saying the words together in which our Lord brings his body and blood into presence for forgiveness of sins, life, and salvation. And, and um, so it is doing what the words say, taking and eating, And it is hearing those words and believing them. Whoever's faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins has exactly what they say. And we can't divide it up into little pieces or parts and try and pit one part against each other. And and there's a good discussion in the formula of Concord. Um, I think it's uh, Article 7, uh, paragraphs probably 77 to 100 that talk about these. And you have to have the use and the action and the words all together for the Lord's Supper to be present. Now, that's that's a lot of deep theology right there. The practical question is this. If it's not Christ's body until it touches your mouth, does that mean you can put out two years' worth of uh, hosts for the Lord's Supper so that you don't run out? And if you do, what do you do with the leftovers? And I know every single church in the Missouri Synod has this question. What do we do with the leftovers? We just put them in the fridge? Do we throw them back in the tub? Do we... Um, them in the ground in the back? Do we burn them? Uh, all these questions are questions that people have to have. And and what the whole point of this whole discussion is, maybe the best thing that we should do is to do what the words themselves say, which is take, eat, take, and drink, and then we don't have to deal with all these other questions. And that is really taking the words at their face value and doing what they say, and therefore fulfilling Christ's command, and and I, I mean that of course, doing what the words say, not our action, is bringing Christ to presence. So, tell me where I'm not being clear here, and we can talk about a little more.
0: No, I th- I think you're, I think you're being very clear. You you framed things uh, very very well, and uh, the way you frame things, uh, those who are pure consecrationists are in error. Those who are pure receptionists are in error because they're only looking at one piece of the picture of the Lord's Supper. They're not looking at, as Brother Kuhlman would say, the whole enchilada. And if we don't get this right, we are open to many, many errors. If we believe in a strict consecrationism, then uh, we are open to the error of the adoration of the host, the Corpus Christi, parade uh, where we are actually worshiping the consecrated elements. Jesus says, take and eat, take and drink, don't worship. You said that very well. If it is my faith rather than the word of God that um, brings Christ to me in the sacrament, then it is all up to me. And that leads to other errors, Uh, certainly with regard to the leftovers, but I would say that's a really minor error compared to some of the other errors that come with a, uh, it's only the body and blood of Jesus when it hits the mouth of a believer because if I'm not a believer, then it doesn't matter. Then I'm just eating bread and wine. And so you have this whole uh, question with regard to open and closed communion and uh, it doesn't matter. And the words of our Lord Uh, as recorded in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 about people examining themselves before they receive the supper, then those words of God's word get thrown under the bus. When we try to examine with our reason and our logic the mysteries of God, we always, always, always get ourselves in trouble now pastor when i'm teaching whether it be junior confirmation class or adults this is how i teach this aspect of the lord's supper and i want your reaction to it because i don't know um, maybe you heard me teach it years ago but nothing recently for sure Jesus gives us his word. The power is in the word with regard to all things in Scripture, but Mm -hmm. especially and including the Lord's Supper. It is not in the ordination of the priest. It is not in the movements or the action. But the pastor speaks the very words of Jesus, the verba, over the bread and the wine. The bread and the wine is to be eaten and drunk For the forgiveness of sins. We are to recognize that Christ's body and blood is really present. This is a mystery eating. When we are eating the body and blood and the bread and the wine, all four of these together, it is a great mystery. It is true. It is for forgiveness, life, and salvation. But it is a mystery. We are to take God's words at face value and we are not to try to dig into how and exactly when the mystery takes place. We're not going to ring a bell at a particular part in the worship service. We're going to leave the mystery up to God. What's your reaction to that?
1: I I think that is saying it the right way, and that actually is why consecrationism versus receptionism is such an important thing, right? And it it isn't just a minor thing. It is important. Martin Luther uh, wrote a letter to a pastor who accidentally— He set out eight hosts to have communion for eight people. And then as he's shipping it, he found that one was missing. And so he just grabbed another one and used that, and then later found the one that was missing on the floor under the altar or something, and he just put it back in the container. And Martin Luther said he should be defrocked and driven out of town, and nobody, his family, should ever talk to him again because he had mistreated Christ's body so so poorly. To us, it's like, wow, that seems really harsh, but it's not. It's important to let God's Word be God's Word. And so the questions, I you know, we talked about, Uh, how much should we put out? If we are taking and eating all of it, we ought to make sure we have enough out there to take and eat all of it, just like Christ's words say. Uh, The question comes for churches that have the sacristy right next to the altar with a little door between them. If it's just the consecration, the words themselves, what happens to those wafers and the wine that's in the uh, the sacristy right next door that's maybe sitting on the cabinet. Does that become con- uh, consecrated? Do we need to worry about that? Um, or is it just these ones? And that's where what we want to do is take the words at face value and do everything the words say. Take, eat, this is my body. Take, drink, this is my blood. And if we keep that as the main thing and don't get into all these sophistic questions then we are keeping Christ's institution properly and we don't need to worry about all these other things. And that's why then too, the leftovers, we ought to probably eat and drink them as the words say. Um, And um, there's more implications and I know we'll get those other questions as well in a little bit here, but uh, uh, these are all really important questions because they affect christ's word and we want christ's word to be christ's word and if you have particular questions with regard
0: to any of these topics that we're uh talking about uh, send us a note give us a call talk to your pastor with regard to these things we do not want the lord's supper this great gift of forgiveness life and salvation to be in doubt in anyone's heart and in anyone's mind that is why the proper practice is so important um to, to sum up, um, what do we do with the leftovers? Well, the best thing is to not have any, mm-hmm. to be as diligent as possible, to not set out uh, uh, huge amounts, to try to cut it as close as possible.
1: And, and even when when you have the little bit of extra and you're consuming it to do so in a reverent matter because we're still treating it as Christ's body and blood, as his word says. Amen. Amen. And what is leftover?
0: I only know what to do, what Jesus told me to do. Take eat, take drink. We need to take a short break. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. We're looking at Christ's gift of the Lord's Supper and the proper distribution and reception of this gift. We'll be back in just a moment. Don't go away.
1: Back Sundays at noon on KNNA.
0: Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on us. The familiar words that are sung to a variety of different tunes, of course, but the uh, familiar words that are sung, commonly referred to as the Agnus Dei, the Agnus Dei, Lamb of God. We are talking about the distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. We're looking at Lutheran, service book, Divine Service Setting 1. When we get to page 164, it simply says, The pastor and those who assist him receive the body and blood of Christ first and then distribute them to those who come to receive. Pastor, we want to talk about this proper distribution and proper reception of the Lord's Supper We've talked over our last couple of episodes in great detail about what God's Word says, the theology of the Lord's Supper, and a proper practice that reflects what we believe, teach, and confess is extremely important. In our previous segment, we we talked about the, the question or the discussion that sometimes happens in churches, especially Lutheran churches, with regard to the Question of distribution is or receptionism or consecrationism, and when does the actual body and blood of Jesus become or appear? Uh, when we try to answer these questions uh, with our reason and our logic, we always always end up in error and we always end up in the ditch. So we take God's word for what it says. We do not want to depart from God's word and we want to accurately reflect in our um, practice the very words of Jesus. What words are we talking about? Take and eat, take and drink. This is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Pastor, it says here in uh, top of page 164 in the rubric, which is Latin for red, the pastor and those who assist him receive the body and blood of Christ first. Okay, I think most of the time when you go to a Lutheran church, this is the practice. Uh, you know, I know in a few rare cases where the pastor and the assistants would um, wait until the end to commune, but that is, that is really quite rare. In uh, the altar book of Lutheran Service Book, this additional rubric is given. The pastor and those who assist him receive the body and blood of Christ first. The presiding minister communing himself and his assistants. Then they distribute the body and blood to those who come to receive. Now, what is added into the altar book is that the presiding minister communes himself. Uh, I don't know if you have run into this question or a concern about this particular practice in your years of service, but uh, what are, what are your thoughts or your comments on that pastor
1: well um I I think it is probably the proper practice to do. Uh, many of the uh, books that discuss the rubrics and talk about them in detail always uh, put forward that idea, and it. I think the argument against it is well, that's kind of odd. It puts the pastor above the other people, and that's not really the case at all. Um, we're always receiving no matter who's distributing, and the giver uh, isn't necessarily the one who's handing things out. The giver is Christ, and the pastor's job is to be the ambassador for Christ, As and we've talked about this in all the different places of the divine service. And so the pastor's the one who's distributing Christ's body in place of our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so he... Um, when he gives it to himself and communes himself, he's doing that same thing. He's receiving from Christ uh, the very same way that all the other people in the congregation are, and so it doesn't set him apart as different. Rather, it puts him uh, with all the rest of the people together.
0: In uh, in the small cult articles, there is a uh, a reference to the fact that a pastor should not commune himself. And this has been taken out of context and has led to a very, very... Uh, unfortunate controversy at some times in the Lutheran Church or the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod specifically. In uh, Precht's book, uh, really a collection of essays, the the history and practice of Lutheran worship, he has this on page 430 and 431. The communing of the ministers and congregation begins during the Agnus day or as the Agnus day concludes. For most of Christian history, the presiding minister has communed himself rather than receiving it from an assisting minister or neglecting his own needs to commune. The practice continued during the Reformation. The warning against self-communion in the small cult articles does not refer to the presiding minister's communing himself together with the people in the public service but is directed against the practice by which priests would commune themselves as a devotional act privately from the congregation. In other words, a private mass. I think that's well said, mm-hmm. but it introduces another topic into our discussion with regard to the proper distribution and reception of the Lord's Supper. What is this private mass thing that the Lutheran confessions are talking about and
1: are vehemently against. Well, um... When you go to churches in Europe, uh, for example, I spent the night at a convent in uh, Dillingen, Germany, and uh, as part of the tour of the convent, uh, we went into one of their old sanctuaries, if you will, and there was the big main altar up in the front, and then there were along all the walls of the entire building, many, many small altars. And what would happen was, uh, in order to, and I'm oversimplifying here, in order to, pay penance and uh, shorten the time in purgatory. A person could pay money to have a priest say a mass at one of these small side altars and thereby receive the forgiveness of sins the uh, distributed by that mass or have it count in their account. And uh, and so these are the private masses. And then also, additionally, as you said, um, A priest could do a Mass in their own home or in their bedroom uh, or whatever and thereby receive forgiveness of sins for themselves. And this is the practice that we are against because we do not believe that one earns forgiveness of sins by doing the work of the Mass. Rather, we believe that Christ gives it out freely and graciously as his very Word says.
0: So this, uh, this issue of private Masses is, uh, is really distinctive in the Roman Catholic Church. This is something that is foreign to Lutheran uh, churches. Um, the Lord's Supper is for the assembled congregation, never for just a select few. And the idea of saying a Mass for the living or for the dead, for that matter, uh, saying a private Mass, which is just the priest or one or two priests gathered together, is completely foreign and, quite frankly, contrary to the words of institution that Jesus has given us.
1: And if you have questions about that, I encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11, where St. Paul talks about recognizing the body of Christ, and he means several things there. He means, yes, the body of Christ in, with, and under the bread, uh, which we are eating and drinking, but he also says we are the body of Christ, and recognizing that and understanding all the people that you are with. And this is the reality that we try and uh, emphasize when we talk about things like closed communion versus open communion as well. So when,
0: uh, when we have the Lord's Supper, it is common practice for the pastor to commune himself. This is not setting the pastor above or apart from the congregation. God has called this man, separated this man into the office of the holy ministry. He is in charge of administering the sacrament. And for the pastor... In the stead and by the command of Jesus to administer the sacrament to himself is not contrary to anything we believe, teach, and confess. In fact, it is following the very words of Jesus. So that should not catch you off guard in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so we have the pastor who communes himself and his assistants, and then the pastor and the assistants commune the congregation. Now, There are many, many questions that arise with regard to the reception of the Lord's Supper when people come up to the communion rail. Uh, We don't have a lot of time left in this segment, Pastor, so I want to touch on the topic uh, in this time that we have left with regard to a proper posture for the people to receive the Lord's Supper in some congregations it is the custom for the people to kneel at the communion rail some congregations do not have a communion rail and so kneeling is physically impossible right. there are sometimes people have the tradition or the custom of kneeling to receive the lord's supper but because of a physical ailment uh, knee surgery hip surgery back surgery whatever they cannot physically kneel and people are filled with guilt and doubt when that happens so what can you tell us pastor with regard to the proper posture in receiving the Lord's Supper
1: Well, the proper posture to receive the Lord's Supper is a posture of reverence. And I think there's the key part of it that goes behind this. It's not so much the actions that we're doing, rather, it's our... uh, confession and reverence to what's happening. And so uh, is it appropriate to kneel down in reverence to Christ's body and blood being truly present in the altar area and being placed into your mouth to eat and drink? Yes, Um, but you can also be reverent if one is unable to kneel by uh, also acting appropriately in the Uh, reception of the Lord's Supper while standing uh, or uh, to bow before you go before the altar or not? Do you have a certain amount of freedom in this so long as you believe what the words say and believe what you are getting and act appropriately to what that means? So maybe irreverent action is what we're trying to uh, fight against, and that would be Goofing around, joking, dress inappropriately, um, uh, chewing gum or having cough drops in there, or slurping—you know—right uh, things like that. Those are the things that would che- be checking, irreverent. Checking Facebook, checking or Facebook, your,
0: your uh, text messages, uh,
1: right? And and, and then you can see parents teaching their kids these things as they're up there as well. And I'd say teaching your kid how to act reverently is actually being reverent, uh, receiving the Lord's Supper as well. Uh, so don't. Don't be afraid, parents, because your kids are doing these things. You're doing exactly what's right, teaching them the reverence that's necessary. And it's not necessarily kneeling, standing, uh, whatever. It is the understanding of what the words say and what God is doing for you that's important. So could I
0: summarize that, Pastor? And we got much, much more to talk about with regard to how this reverence plays out. But would it be proper then to say that the proper Posture in the receiving of the Lord's Supper is a posture of reverence in the heart. You like that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem with that, um, so long as we properly understand what we mean by heart. There, well, yep. and
0: there, there again, that we would have to flesh that out. All right, this is at home in your hymnal. We're talking about the reception and distribution of the Lord's Supper. Episode 31. We'll be back after a short break. Don't change that dial.
2: You are listening to KNNA LP, 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.
0: Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Grant us peace. Peace. Forgiveness, life, and salvation. This is what God distributes to us in the Lord's Supper. The very body and blood of Jesus in and under bread and wine given for us Christians to eat and drink. This is At Home in Your Hymnal. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline. For uh, the last couple of episodes, we've been looking at the theology and now the, the doctrine and practice of the Lord's Supper. In this episode 31, we've been looking at several aspects of a proper and reverent distribution of the Lord's Supper. And in our, in our previous segment, Pastor Moline ended with a, uh, with just a, a marvelous description of the proper posture that we are to have when we approach the communion rail, when we receive Christ's body and blood. And it doesn't have so much to do with what we are physically doing or not doing but it is a posture of the heart and what I mean by that is a faith that believes that God's words are true the very body and blood of Jesus is really present and that faith will erupt in a proper reverence In the reception. So, whether you kneel or stand uh, is irrelevant as long as we are reverent with regard to receiving the Lord's Supper. If we really believe what Christ's words say in our reverence, we're not going to be joking around. We're not going to be playing on our cell phone. We're not going to be chewing gum or um, wearing inappropriate clothing so that other people might notice us when we stand up in front of the congregation, all of these things really tie into that topic of reverence. Now, Pastor, you mentioned something toward the end of our last segment that uh, uh, I want to ask how this fits into the reverence topic with regard to the reception of the Lord's Supper. You talked about parents teaching their kids how to behave at the communion rail. Now, when I was a kid, I would have never dreamt to go to the communion rail because I was not confirmed. It was not a common practice 40, 50, 60, 75 years ago. The kids sat in the pew and sang hymns, and they were reverent in the pew, or at least they were supposed to be. Now we have a practice where many parents bring their children, especially their small children, bring their children to the communion rail. That practice of bringing children to the communion rail in light of this reverence topic that we're talking about.
1: Well, uh, it is an important thing for kids to understand what's going on, and it's an opportunity then for parents to teach. And and, uh, note that I said it's an opportunity for parents to teach. Pastors are usually fairly busy at this time, and so the pastor uh, is distributing, and the parent has the opportunity to say, see, look what's coming. Christ is giving us his body in, with, and under this bread, and we're going to eat it for forgiveness of sins. Christ is giving us his blood in, with, and under this wine for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, We need to act appropriately here in the sanctuary because this is where God is really present for you and for your forgiveness. And parents do the same thing at other places, right? Uh, so you go to a sporting event, you teach your kid to stand up and put their hand on their heart during the... Um, the national anthem, and you you take your kid to the library, and you say we have to be quiet here in the library. You teach your kid how to act in particular places in front of particular people, and that's what you're doing here when you bring your child up to the altar rail. Um, you know, and we don't have a person like the Queen of England that tells you the proper protocol for addressing the person. You know, say marm instead of ma'am, or I don't know how it goes, right? But uh, we we have the opportunity for parents to do this in relation to reverence here in the church sanctuary.
0: I think that is very, very well said, and— uh Kids want to know what's going on. Kids want to need to know what's going on. And there are many times when uh, the children at the rail and the pastor has an opportunity to give a baptismal blessing to that child. This is this is a one-on-one blessing encounter with the pastor and the small child. And this is a powerful thing. This is a good thing. It's a powerful thing. And. Parents and kids don't outgrow it. Kids do not outgrow it. And uh, I've had kids where, you know, the pastor is busy and maybe you forget to do the sign of the cross or a blessing with an individual child. And, you know, they'll come up to me in tears after the church service. Uh, Why didn't I get a blessing? What you know, this this is a big deal. And for them to see that that there is there is no cannibalism going on, that this is bread and wine, this is the body and blood of Jesus, that people are receiving Christ reverently for the forgiveness of sins, I think helps them hunger to receive the sacrament rightly after they have been properly instructed,
1: Pastor. Yeah, parents should consider um, if they take their kid to church every week. And every week they teach him how important the Lord's Supper is and how we behave reverently. Receiving it, uh, and they do that until the kid is confirmed. Just think about how much um, effect that might have on a child. That's 676 times uh, that a parent could show their kid what's going on in the Lord's Supper and have a conversation about it and talk with them about it and show them how important that it is. Um, There's no way that a pastor could ever do the same thing in just a couple years of confirmation class that a parent can do uh, over 675 times sitting with their child in church throughout their life. Uh, There's so much more um, opportunity for parents to teach the faith than there are for pastors to.
0: Very well said. Very well said. Okay, Pastor, again, with regard to this reverence theme, there are uh, many hymns that are generally picked that are sung during the distribution of the Lord's Supper. And uh, as you mentioned before, the singing of hymns or musical selections by the choir, that kind of a thing, is usually a cover for some of the activity that's going on. And I I think this is marvelous. We generally get a chance to sing three, maybe four hymns during the distribution of the Lord's Supper at a regular Sunday morning service. What about someone who would like to, maybe they're singing their favorite hymn, uh, the someone who would take their hymnal with them and sing the hymn as they're standing in line or at the communion rail before they receive the Lord's Supper. Thoughts on that, how that ties into this reverence question?
1: I think that is a good practice to do. And what it is, We have to understand properly what a hymn is. Uh, Lots of people think a hymn is our prayer to God. Uh, Lots of people think that it's our praise of God. And I wouldn't deny that maybe there's a certain aspect where that's the the case. But the truth is, uh, hymns are supposed to be God's word. And whenever we're receiving God's word, that's his work to us. And so singing a hymn, even just reading the words and following along, if you're not a good singer, is a way for God's word to come to us and to increase our faith wherever God's word is the Holy Spirit spirit is. And so it's a good practice, therefore, to take your hymnal with you and to keep singing while you go up to the altar. I know maybe if you have a lot of kids, it makes it hard to manage things. If you're uh, a little uncertain about how to receive the Lord's Supper while holding a hymnal, then you have to think through that a little bit. But it is a good practice to keep on receiving God's word and to follow along with the service in God's word, even as we go up to receive God's gift of the Lord's Supper.
0: I'm, I, we hadn't talked about this ahead of time. I'm glad that uh, that was your answer. I agree with you 1,000%. Uh, I suppose it is possible that someone who considers themselves a magnificent singer and that they would want to draw attention to themselves, that that could be an irreverent thing. But again, uh, this gets down to your attitude and your motivation for why you would do it. For most Christians, singing the hymns during the distribution of the Lord's Supper is a part of their Christian piety and a very natural thing, whether it's done in the pew or standing in line or even at the communion rail. Pastor, okay, people have come up to the the rail, uh, whether they're standing or kneeling, we already talked about that. So receiving the body of Christ, the host, in the hand... Or in the mouth. There are a lot of different schools, a lot of different practices, a lot of different traditions here. Um, Comments and thoughts about this particular topic.
1: Yeah, boy, that's a broad topic. It is Um, a broad topic. There's, once again, it's a place where there's no right or wrong way to do it. I mean, if you do it one way versus another, that's not going to affect your salvation. Only Jesus gives you salvation by his work and by his gifts. So that's thing number one that has to be said. Now, uh, that said, there perhaps is better practices than others, and and, uh, maybe that's worth talking about. Uh, What we are doing is we are receiving Christ's body and blood. And... um, it's fine to receive it on the hands. It's fine to receive it in the mouth. Uh, the idea is, is that whatever you are doing reflects the idea that it really is God's work that you are receiving. And so some people do like to receive it right into their mouth, uh, for that reason. Then they say, you know, look, I'm receiving what God is giving. I'm not taking it, uh, and, and making it my own. And, and that's a good and fine thought. And, uh, Maybe' it's something to consider a little bit. Uh, it's fine then also to receive it into your hand and to put it in your mouth. You're still receiving it. and that's the key thing behind both of those um, both of those activities. Now, there are some, Things the church can do to affect this as well. Some bread is easier to receive in the mouth than others. Uh, the uh, the round uh, hosts perhaps are easier to place in there because they have a little bit more surface area on the flat side rather than a little square of bread. Um, and so that makes some of those things easier to decide and and uh, figure out your own personal piety in um, as you consider that thing. Same thing with the, the common cup versus the individual cup. There's no right or wrong way. There are questions. Uh, that are raised, maybe in both cases, but uh, uh, you have freedom in that knowing that Christ is giving you his blood to drink for forgiveness of sins. And that's the key uh, that we remember we're receiving what God is giving uh, herein. Um, and I don't know if we want to get into the questions about those things here or if you want to do it later in another episode or what.
0: I I think some of these things will naturally uh, happen. I think uh, I was asking specifically with regard to reverence, and you answered that very well, and also talked about the freedom that we have. if, uh, if your attitude is that this really isn't the body and blood of Jesus and some people during the time of the Reformation th- those that were in the Reformed or more evangelical camp would get the bread or the wafer in their hand and then they would snap it or break it and that was to make a confession to the whole world look see it's just bread there's no Jesus in here and so they were mocking the Lord's Supper they were defying and denying the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And uh, people today, the, the people in the Lutheran Church, whether they receive it by placing their hand in another and receiving it like a throne or receiving it as a gift, or whether they open their mouth like a little hungry bird and receive it directly into their mouth, I know of no one with receiving it either way that is trying to make a public statement that they deny the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the Lord's Supper. And that is the key as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, and if they were making a public statement in that regard through their actions, the pastor would need to have a discussion with the person about that. And so uh, talk to your pastor, ask him questions, figure out why we're doing what we're doing, and maybe that will help inform you on what your own personal practice is in these regards. You talked about
0: freedom in many of these areas, and uh, there's a few other little topics that we need to talk about in the next episode, but there are certain things that we are not free to do. We follow Christ's words. We are not free to substitute Coca-Cola and potato chips for bread and wine. Uh, The discussion then naturally is, well, what about those who are physically unable to receive wine? Can we substitute? There are a few other topics that we need to address as we move forward with our discussion. But sadly... This episode has come to a close. This is episode 31, At Home in Your Hymnal. Thank you so much for tuning in. We pray God's richest blessings as you hear God's word and as you receive his gifts, especially the gift of the Lord's supper. We'll be back again soon. God's richest blessings in
2: Christ.